0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for April 20th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington.
1: You know, the partisanship didn't just start in the last decade, but the gridlock really has just started in the last few years, honestly. And that gridlock is due to the partisanship on both sides.
0: Our guest for this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast is Senator David Perdue. Elected in 2014, the Georgia Republican is the former head of two Fortune 500 companies. He says it is time to get serious about reducing the nation's debt, now in excess of $21 trillion. He joins us to talk about why the ballooning debt and deficit remains one of America's greatest national security threats. Senator David Perdue, Republican of Georgia, just how much is $21 trillion? <laughs> wow,
1: Steve, it's not funny. You know, it's more than I can even think about. Well, let me just give you another characterization. If you combine what is already in our debt, that's the $21 trillion, with our unfunded liabilities for just the next 30 years, it's over $130 trillion. And that means that's $1 million for every household in America. This is unconscionable. How and why did we get to this point? Well, we have a system of politics that Robespierre warned us of back in 1817. He said, you know, representative democracies have a problem because when the masses feel like they can vote their, their benefits for themselves, politicians lose the discipline to maintain a balanced budget and you lose control and the government explodes and you end up with this massive debt. And that's where we are. You've had the sweeping programs from the 60s, the Great Society, the New Deal, all those things from back in the 20th century have now come home to roost. And we cannot afford the commitments that we've been making for the last 50 years.
0: You issued a statement earlier this month saying it's time for politicians to get serious about the debt. How do they do that? Is there a political will to do that? Oh, they will sooner or later,
1: you know, when there's a crisis. And the crisis is, let me me try to draw the, the picture around this crisis. Within the next 14 years, America will face a, a financial crisis like it cannot imagine, greater than the Great Depression, greater than anything I can imagine. And Here's what starts it. I believe <clears throat> in the next 14 years, unless we do something, Social Security and Medicare trust funds go to zero. Now, you talk about a riot on the streets when you have to call my Aunt Susie and tell her, I'm sorry, all those things we've been telling you we could do, we can no longer do. That's a problem. And the, and the left says, well, all we need to do is just tax more. Well, that's not, you can't just tax your way to solving this thing. Well, the right says, well, you just need to cut expenses. Well, you can't cut enough expenses. Then another group says, well, you just need to grow your way out. Well, you can't grow your way out of this problem. You really have to do all of the above. And, and the sooner we get started, the better. I, I tell you, Steve, honestly, I get asked this all the time. Well, when is the tipping point of the crisis? We're past it.
0: I don't know exactly when it was, but it is in our past. I'm looking at it in the rearview mirror. As you know, your party supported a big tax cut that some estimates will cost a trillion dollars over the next 10 years, maybe even sooner than that. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and that's one way to look at it for sure. The CBO actually does not give any credit to the uh, intended growth, potentially, that comes from that. So this is an investment. When you reduce corporate taxes become competitive to the rest of the world, um, you eliminate the repatriation tax and you bring back all those um, unrepatriated profits, over $2 trillion. Uh, that's stimulative, and the gro- and the growth will be uh, paramount, I think, to turning this thing around. Let me give you an example, though. If you grow the GDP, that's the size of our economy, which under Barack Obama averaged 1.8 percent, if you just grow that one uh, base, 100 basis point or 1 percentage point, that's $300 billion a year in federal revenue or $3 trillion over the next 10 years. So you can see that growing 100 basis point in GDP and picking up $3 trillion dollars over the next 10 years is not enough because the CBO says that right now we're going to add about 10 or 11 trillion dollars more to the 21 trillion dollars that we have right now. And you know, Steve, there were two milestones that we just hit uh, in the last uh, two weeks. About two weeks ago, we passed 21 trillion dollars for the first time, officially. Now, they're not talking about that because they have this cap. Well, in reality, it's over $21 trillion. We have a budget clock in my reception area, and that is tricking over now $21 trillion. The second is April 15th, just past Sunday. Um, Everybody thinks that's tax day. Well, it is, but it's also the deadline for finishing the U.S. federal budget for 2019 that starts October 1 of this year. We didn't do a budget in the last three years, the Republicans did a budget in 15. It it was waived four months later for the grand bargain. A trillion and a half dollars was added to the debt over 10 years, and we went along our merry way. Last year, no budget was done. This year, no budget was done, and reconciliation was done to to address health care and tax, and in my opinion, improperly.
0: Quick question about filing taxes. Will it be easier
1: this time next year? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, they project that a dramatic percentage of people now who did not or who use itemized deduction will now use the standard deduction because we doubled the standard deduction. We simplify the line items on the tax return. So when people do that a year from now, uh, there will be glee in the streets. It will be much,
0: much simpler. Let's talk about exactly what a trillion dollars is. <laughs> there are 12 zeros. And according to one estimate, if you spent a million dollars an hour nonstop, 24 hours a day, it would run out in four hundred and eleven years that's just one trillion dollars and we have twenty one of those that we owe today and hundred
1: and thirty of those that we've already committed to it's like buying a car yeah I know I already owe this much today but I've got another two or three years I've got to pay well we have another thirty years and in that thirty years it's hundred and thirty trillion dollars this is so insane Steve that you know we've got to get at this and there's there are things we can do America is not bankrupt you know we can cut some and and I know a lot of people say well there you can increase taxes you can reduce tax expenditures well let me tell you what the opportunities are right now first of all you got to grow the economy and the president's working on that we're all working on that i was part of that last year we worked on regulation energy and taxes and we've had now for the last year growth of of about 3% gdp which is over 100 basis points greater than the prior 8 years but you also have to cut. We have about $700 billion of wasted spending as identified by the General Accountability Office. I haven't seen anybody other than us that have really gone after that. Tom Coburn did a few years ago. He, he, he uh, illustrated the opportunities there. We have that, that's the second thing. Third, this budget process, and we can talk about that later, is broken. And thanks to Paul Ryan, we have a select committee now working on that. I'm a member of that. But the reason that's so perverse is that over 180 CRs have been used in the last 44 years since the Budget Act was put in place. And every time we do one of those, it leads to an omnibus where five people get in a room and increase the debt. That's what happens. Those are the first three things. The fourth is probably the biggest. We have to save Social Security and save Medicare. And fifth is we have to get at the spiraling nature, the drivers of our
0: health care costs. Let's talk about entitlement, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. How do you solve the problem? Are there lessons from the Reagan years in the 1980s that can be applied today?
1: Absolutely, you know, I met with Chairman Greenspan, who used to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. And in 1983, they had a commission, he was part of that commission to solve social security. And you can imagine 30 years ago, how much easier it was then than it is now in terms of doing the math. But even today, there are five levers that we can pull to fix and save social security, which we have an obligation to do. And the longer we wait, the harder it is to fix. Social Security is the easy one. Medicare is a little more difficult because you have the health care cost spiral in there built in. But in Social Security, if you were to just change the age a little bit, for people below age 55, and you could change it periodically for, or, or in different ages. So 45 to 55 could be one thing, 35 to 45, anybody under 35 could be another. That's minor. The, the, the next thing though, is I think means testing needs to be discussed. Third, you could you could change the benefit size or the pay-in amount or change the CPI um, index in there. So there are five levers. I promise you, if you put 100 people in the Senate together, made them uh, lock the doors and not let them out, within two hours we could get agreement on what to do there. It's just they won't sit down because of the political difficulty in doing that. Nobody wants to do it.
0: When would we get to that point politically?
1: Well, I want to do it now. I mean, we have various people who have put bills in. We've been talking about it, outside groups. Uh, have given us the different models that we can play with. We have one that, that uh, we can play with that shows it's not that hard to fix this. If You you can just adjust the age a little bit. You can just put means testing in for high net worth individuals. And those two things alone, you can get at solving uh, Social Security. This It's not about cutting the benefit. It really is about saving the trust fund, which we're already, this year, we're subsidizing out of our general account. We will subsidize a Social Security trust fund. About a hundred billion dollars already, and that grows to over uh, over four hundred and fifty billion dollars just in the next ten year window. So, uh, this is a crisis that's already here. You can see it on paper. Um, when we talk to the leadership in both the House and the Senate, uh, Paul Ryan wants to do this. Mitch McConnell wants to do it, but then they always say, "Well, there's a race coming up." and Republicans don't want to be seen as the ones cutting Social Security. Well, the answer is not cutting Social Security. It's saving Social Security.
0: As you know, there's a cap on when you're taxed after about $150,000 a year. You are no longer taxed on Social Security. Should that be reconsidered?
1: I think absolutely. I think, you know, this, this index is uh, – the math doesn't work, and they knew it. When they put Social Security in 1935, the uh, life expectancy was uh, something like 69 um, – I'm sorry, uh, 59 – and uh, they put the age in at, uh, I think at that time, 62 or so. So they knew what they were doing. It was an insurance if, 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 of, of, of last resort. Today, my mother worked for 30 years, retired in her 60s, lived in her 90s, and that math just doesn't work anymore. And so you, we've got to find a way to adjust that. And, uh, again, those five levers need to be um, debated. The solution is there readily available to us. Um, every year we wait, though, it gets more and more painful to actually save Social Security.
0: Would you agree it needs to be bipartisan? Oh, it has to be. I mean, there's
1: no other way. I mean, you can imagine, and that's the problem. Um, in, this, in this town, you know, the partisanship has become rabid. Um, I talked to people from past eras, Sam Nunn, Trent Lott, um, you know, Tom Daschle. I have a phone call this week to talk about this very thing. So I'm, I'm talking to Democrats and Republicans who come from an era where they actually got things done. But, you know, um, there are people in this town who, in in elected officials, who I believe their self-interest is more important to them than the national interest. Now, that'll be true right up until the time we get a crisis, and then all those people will be at the head of line saying, oh, no, we have the solution, let's go do it. But I I just think it's a criminal sin to wait until we actually have this sort of crisis that is so visible today. Why we would wait, um,
0: I, I don't know. We're talking with Republican Senator David Perdue, and you're a member of the Budget Committee. Let me go back to your earlier point about regular order. How do we get there, and what does that mean for the budget process? Well, we have some things
1: where we do have bipartisan on and, and, uh, agreement on, and agreement um, on. And let me give you an example. We have we just passed a banking bill in the United States Senate out of our committee. We passed it on the floor with 67 votes, which means I think we got something like 18 Democratic votes. And what this does is it adjusts um, Dodd-Frank just a little bit. It, it, it reduces some of the reserve capital reserve requirements for small banks and regional banks, and it reduces the compliance cost and requirements for some of these small banks which, that had nothing to do with the 2008 and 9 financial crisis. And that's a bipartisan effort. That to me is a model of regular order of how it should work. We did it in committee. We fought it out. It's not what I want. It's not what the Democrats want. But we found four people in the committee that voted with us. Then we found 18 Democrats that voted with us, and we have a bipartisan bill that hopefully the House will pass here in the next few days and get that done. So there's hope, but on the big issues, there's, you know, we just have to have a a realization that we're in the midst of a crisis, because Americans have always been the best at dealing with crisis. Um, Just in the last 100 years, the Great Depression, uh, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, we deal well with crisis. We pull together as a country. That's who America is. The problem is we're not always the fastest uh, at, at recognizing we're in a crisis. Can you remind our
0: audience about your business background?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up on a farm. My mom and dad were school teachers, and I, I worked in business for 40 years. Um, you know, I started out as a consultant f- trying to help companies fix things. So it, it, I got in some very um, ugly turnarounds in at that stage of my career and later, Uh, I worked for companies like Sara Lee. Uh, I was CEO of the Reebok brand, uh, which was a global brand and then dollar general. Um, and today there's only one fortune 500 CEO in Congress and I'm it, which I think is a terrible problem, frankly. But, um, because of that business background, I lived in Asia, I lived in Europe and I have sort of a transnational view of how our free enterprise system works. And so when president Trump said, Hey, job one is growing the economy. I was all in and, um, helped, I think, uh, influence the focus on what needed to be done first, and that was regulation, free up our energy, uh, and get after taxes. And then we had to do something in banking to free up uh, what was on the balance sheets. You know, prior to last year, Steve, and you talked about this earlier, I've heard it on, on this station, we had over $6 trillion not at work in our $20 trillion economy. This is capital that was liquid. It was ready to be invested, but because of our laws, uh, and regulations, it wasn't being used. We had $2 trillion on the bank balance sheets because of Dodd-Frank, $2 trillion at least, 2 to $3 trillion overseas in unrepatriated profits, and then we had $2 trillion on the Russell 1000. These are our 1,000 largest companies mm-hmm. on their balance sheet. Because of the regulatory environment, they couldn't find investments that they could get a reasonable return um,
0: for the risk that they had to take. Can you apply your business background to the government, or are they two very distinct entities? Boy, it's hard. And yeah, I hear these
1: career politicians tell me all the time, well, just stick around long enough, you'll you'll learn. I don't accept that, because this is nothing but more zeros. This is a $21 trillion problem. I've faced other, other problems and other turnarounds and had great teams that focused on this, and we were successful dealing with the issues. The first thing you have to do is decide what the problem is, decide what the resources are to solve that problem, pull the people and sell them on uh, the solution you choose or the one that you can sell them on, and then put people to work and hold them accountable. In the federal government right now, it's not a linear space. We don't go from point A to point B. The debate is wins the day, and I understand why that is. But we're in a crisis. The, in a moment of crisis in World War II, we turned around and converted industry after industry to making war material. Now, that was a tragic thing to have to do. But without doing that, we'd all be speaking German today. And so this is one of those moments in history where we have to have clear leadership from the White House, we have to have people in, the, in Congress who are willing to do the thing that might not get them reelected in order to save our country. I really believe the Republic is at risk when you have this kind of debt and you have this kind of uh, global situation. I just got back from spending a week in China, and I can tell you, they're not sitting around waiting for us to fix this, they're taking advantage of it. Their one band one road uh, situation that they've got going on around the world, uh, their 5.8 trillion dollar central bank uh, bank account. Um,
0: we're at great risk right now. We're losing the right to do the right thing. Let me take that one step further because some in this town have said that the debt is a national security issue. Who do we owe the debt to, and in particular, what do we owe China?
1: Well, we owe China about a trillion and a half dollars. Of that 21 trillion, about a trillion and a half is directly attributable to China. Now, indirectly, I think China has influence over much more than that because of the direct. Uh, uh, debt amounts that we have to other countries that are involved with China in trade and so forth. So if China said, I'm not going to show up at a quarterly bond offering by the United States Fed, uh, for example, they could influence a number of other countries to to do the same thing potentially because of the size of their trade. And that's very problematic. We've had them already not show up at a a bond uh, offering. um, And that really concerns me. Here's the real issue of this debt. We don't have to wait 10 years to see the problem. This year, our interest just on the debt, just the interest on the debt, is $60 billion more than it was one year ago. And in five short years, Steve, we will spend more on interest. And that's it. That's just if we have current interest rate. And, again, that's money before you do anything. Absolutely. The interest payment in five years, in 2023, and we just looked at the CBO number, is greater than what we will spend on our national defense. Now, that's unconscionable. And people say, well, that's five years from now. We'll fix it. Well, no, not unless we start working on it. And my point is, already with six increases in the Fed fund rate in the last year and a half, our interest payment this year is $60 billion more than just last year, just one year ago. That's not projections. That's reality. And the other reality is President Trump and Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, inherited a bond portfolio at that time about $19 trillion dollars. That had a duration, a bond duration. That means the average maturity of that whole bond portfolio, that $21 trillion, was under three years. So what happened during the Obama administration, instead of going long when interest rates were fundamentally zero, they went short in order to keep that interest payment as low as possible. And now we are very vulnerable because what happens is as interest rates go up, as we've seen in the last year and a half, that hits your bond portfolio immediately. And so what we're doing now is trying, Mnuchin is, as they mature, he's now buying, he's, he's, he's issuing longer and longer bonds, which is exactly the right thing to do.
0: Senator Purdue, do you have colleagues in the Senate who share this urgency, and if so, who?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Steve Daines is a business guy, lived in China for a while. He understands the global perspective. Bob Corker, uh, other members of the Budget Committee see it readily. Mike Enzi, who is, by the way, Mike Enzi has a career as an accountant. He's the chairman of the of the Senate Budget Committee. He has made the statement just in the last couple weeks, that the Senate may have already passed its last budget ever unless we change the 1974 budget. And you say, well, how can that possibly be? Well, the 1974 budget act asks us or requires us to show a balanced budget within 10 years. So you have to balance the budget within 10 years in the projection. And the way Congress has always done this, and this is career politicians again, fooling the American people, frankly. What they do is they use all sorts of gimmicks. They they do things that if you did it as a federal, as a uh, public company CEO, you'd go to jail. They time expenses. They bring they push expenses out. They bring revenue in of the planning period. They use things like chimps and other things that really uh, are fraudulent, and they can make it artificially balanced. Today, uh, we have about an eight hundred billion dollar shortfall per year. That's today. Um, And that's so big that you can't even show a balance over 10 years. So Mike Enzi, for the first time, is being honest with the American people, saying, guys, according to the current law, which is the 74 Budget Act, we can't provide a budget anymore. We haven't done one in the last two years. The one that was done in 15 was waived after four months to do the grand bargain. And the next thing Mike Enzi said, and this is the chairman of the Budget Committee, it's a very prestigious job, very important job historically. He has said that based on the lack of function in the Budget Committee that he would do away with the Budget Committee. It's totally non-functional. So I don't know what other testimony I can give to show that it's time to do what we're trying to do right now with this joint select committee on the budget to fix this 74 Budget Act that's only worked four times in 44 years. We've only passed. This is the, 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 the indictments just roll out, Steve. I'm, I'm sorry. My wife says I can bring any cocktail party to its <laughs> knees. But this is important. People need to know this. And you, you your audience um, knows most of this. But in the last 44 years, you're supposed to pass uh, 12 appropriation bills to fund the government. We've only averaged two and a half in the Senate. That's outrageous. We've used 180-plus CRs, continuing resolutions, that lead to an omnibus where five or six people get in a room and decide how to spend a trillion dollars. And then, you know, lastly, this is the shock of all. Over the last 44 years, Congress, in its infinite wisdom, because it didn't do a budget, didn't fund the government, shut the government down, 20 times. That's 2-0, Steve. I have never read that. I've never heard people talk about that. But you go back in the archives and look. 20 times in the last 44 years, because of the dysfunction in this budget process, we have sh- the government, the, the, the Congress has shut the federal government down. That's and you have,
0: And you've been pushing for a balanced budget amendment.
1: Oh, absolutely. You've got to have that. You've got to start in that. But 44 states have a balanced budget amendment. Guess which states do not have a fiscal problem? those 44 states. States like California, Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, they do not have a balanced budget law. They know how to spend money, and now they are fundamentally bankrupt when you look at their obligations on retirement plans and so forth. Uh, Look, we are a country that's learned how to build debt and leverage. Well, that's fine if you have a return on it. But if you're leveraging your lifestyle and borrowing money just to increase your lifestyle, without a return on investment, that's very dangerous. So when you're borrowing money to pay interest on the debt, which is what we're doing today, nobody in an in their personal life can do that for very long.
0: And we've been doing it for 30 years. Two final points. We are approaching the graduation season. So what would you tell the class of 2018 the young people that will inherit this debt over the next generation or two
1: get out and vote talk to your parents talk to your uncles talk to your grandparents talk to anybody if they're not voting and get out and vote and vote people in that will vote for the national benefit and not the individual benefit look we have the the the, the pressure here in Washington is all about reelecting incumbent politicians and because of that we will not bring up social security for example I haven't seen it in three years. There have been people asking for it. The, in a crisis, they'll they'll agree to do that. But I would tell those people have hope because the solutions are readily available. They need to get involved in the political process and put people up here that will change the the um, historical pressures against um, fixing these things. They're totally fixable. They're not beyond our reach. We have so many resources in America. We're the most innovative, productive um people in the in the world we're very diverse i look at china i look at japan other people that have said uh, you know well you know america is going to be a second-rate country well we've survived all of that um we've we are now re-engaging with the rest of the world and i can tell you having been on foreign relations now in armed services that the rest of the world is welcoming america's re-engagement today so i would tell these young people be hopeful uh get educated the best you can find meaningful work um and get involved in the political process so that we put people up here that'll make the tough decisions and final
0: question what are your thoughts about Washington in general the Senate as an institution in particular you're in your first term elected in 2014 what are you seeing in what do you think well I went
1: back and looked I think the Senate's broken I really do um, I look I go back in history though and it's been broken a long time uh, in the early days the venomous letters that were written back and forth the um, you know, the partisanship didn't just start in the last decade, but the gridlock really has just started in the last few years, honestly. And that gridlock is due to the partisanship on both sides that I think put above the interest of the country, the interest of their party or their own leadership. Um, I went back and looked at the original rules of the Senate. There were six pages. Fifty-one percent uh, ruled a the day. They had a filibuster rule then, that but it was a physical filibuster rule. It wasn't even used until the 1850s um it was abused in the 1890s then in 1913 the senate got together and said well and that was a the year they changed from being appointed in the senate to being elected in the senate and in that year they decided to change the filibuster rule that said that it, it was being abused so to speed the senate up if we could get two-thirds of us to agree to agree then we would end debate and move to the vote so that's what they did they put a 67 vote rule 67 percent vote rule then in 76 they said well it's still not working We'll reduce that to 60 votes. And today, if the minority party decides to shut down the functionality of the Senate, they can do that. And that's what's happened under Harry Reid, and that's what's happening right now, in my opinion. And
0: Republicans do it, too, when they're in the minority. Senator David Perdue, on that note, thank you very much for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. Thanks, Steve. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. And by the way, you can find our programming on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio and find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.